You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Welcome to The Good GP. I'm Sean Stevens, and today we're interviewing Justin Coleman, medical writer, editor, blogger, GP, and fellow podcaster. I had the pleasure of attending Justin and his colleagues' session at GP17 in Sydney, and I thought it was worth a follow-up podcast for those who couldn't attend. The session was called The One-Minute Diagnosis, Think Again. So, Justin, for those listeners who weren't lucky enough to be at your talk, give us a central premise, please. Oh, thanks, Sean. Lovely to be here. Look, the central premise of the talk at GP17 was talking about cognitive biases and the ways in which they do affect our patterns of thinking and also the ways then, uh, once we're aware of them, that we can try to guard against them. Now, a cognitive bias is really something that in a GP consultation, we have to process very complex information. We have lots and lots of tasks we have to do from the moment the patient walks in the door to the moment they walk out. And if we do each of those tasks thoroughly as if from scratch every time, it takes us an inordinate amount of time. And you can see that with with med students uh, when they're doing the same thing. So what we do is we develop shortcuts over the years and we get better and better at it. And um, experienced GPs use a lot of pattern recognition and a lot of, yes, I've seen this before, and a lot of thinking ahead through the consultation. So in the very first minute when you stop a consultation, a recorded consultation after one minute, most GPs tend to get the answer right most of the time once you've got a bit of experience just from the first few things the patient says. So cognitive biases are are shortcuts in thinking, some of which are very useful and, in fact, we can't do without them altogether, but we need to be aware when we're using them. And there are two ways of thinking. Of course, you can divide ways of thinking into as many as you wanted, but a fellow called Daniel Kahneman, who was a Nobel Prize winner in uh, economics, wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow, and he divided ways of thinking into fast thinking and slow thinking. And fast thinking, which he called type one thinking, is intuitive and it's it's this rapid uh, assessment that we're, we use so much as a GP. And then slow thinking is more rational and it's a, it's a thought out logical type of thinking. So that's the, the, it's analysing these types of thinking that um, is what we're talking about today. I think that's really good points because you do flip into pattern recognition. You're busy, you've got people waiting. But every now and again, you'll go, hang on, this is not quite fitting the pattern. And I think after I listened to your talk, I thought, yeah, that that's when you pick up a red flag and that's when I, and I guess a lot of GPs, switch into slow thinking. So I find that point really interesting. Yeah, and the, I think you have to use both types of thinking as a GP. So not every consultation should be one thinking or the other, and even different parts of the consultation should use different types. I think it's just helpful to be aware of those, which is why we ran the workshop. Uh, you brought up an example, non-medical example, that I was quite interested with, and I thought I'd just share with our listeners to give them an idea of fast and slow thinking. So you said, a bat and a ball cost $1.10 in total. The bat costs a dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? If any of our listeners answered 10 cents, then you're in the 90% majority and you're incorrect. And I 
freely admit I was in the uh, incorrect majority there as well. So the answer is five cents because a dollar more than that is a dollar five, which is of course equates to a dollar ten. So that's a, a I thought a very good example of where you'll leap to the answer and and you'll be wrong. <laughs> Or possibly um, an example of your bad mathematical ability, Sean. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's Listeners so can interpret it how they will. Uh, you're right. That is, that's an example of, of rapid thinking. So it seems logical that the ball costs 10 cents. If you're, for that sort of thinking, you sort of, if you know there's a bit of a trick and you know there's a possibly an alarm bell or a red flag, you then think, okay, I think the answer is 10 cents but hang on a minute, this is one I've got to spend more time on. Let me get out a pen and paper and check that I'm right. And you sort of triangulate, you come back from a different angle. And in this case, mathematically, you, you might, for example, say, if the ball costs 10 cents, then how much is a bet? And then you add it up and you realise you're wrong. And so that it's not a disaster coming up with the wrong answer in the first place. The disaster is, once you get into medicine, or it is if you get the wrong answer and have no idea it's the wrong answer because you've just jumped to that conclusion. So you that's an example where you bring in your type two thinking, but you have to know to bring it in. Yeah, good point. I mean, we all know when we're doing an exam, we're on our top of our game and we're watching for these sorts of things. But yeah, you can, if you're not focusing, you can switch into inappropriately into fast thinking during a consultation. Yeah, it's, it's sort of making yourself aware of the known unknowns. I think William Shakespeare said, the fool doth think he is wise, but the wise man knoweth himself to be a fool. Basically, as long as you know you're going to be foolish sometimes uh, and you're prepared to rethink it, then you should be fine. So you then, in your talk, went on to discuss various areas of medicine and um, medical treatment, the first being diagnosis. So what are some of the heuristic biases within diagnosis? So with diagnosis, one thing which is primary in GP practice as opposed to some other you know, specialties which use less of it is that often there's a, a very uncertain diagnosis and we have to get used to managing uncertainty. With the bat and ball example, there is actually one true answer at the end, which everyone, once they've seen it, will agree upon, yes, that's correct. But so much in medicine, there's sometimes there is that one true answer. So someone comes in with a rash and there's one particular thing causing it. In truth, that is actually causing it and, and you can get that right or wrong. But often in medicine also, there's there's lots of, uh, the person's life is full of lots of different things and there's chaos and the person has moods and depressions and diabetes and lots of other things. And there, there may not be one particular answer to their issues. But with diagnosis, uh, there are various biases which we commonly use. And if I can just run through uh, some of the more common ones. So a very common one is called the availability bias. And availability refers to the fact that it is uppermost in your mind. So it's in your you know, relatively recent memory and it's very available for you. So an example of that is if you've seen a few things recently and you've been thinking about them, then uh, you're more likely to diagnose the next person to come in uh, with the similar symptoms as that answer. Now, sometimes, of course, as I say, this can be a good thing. So if you're if it's flu season and you've suddenly seen your first four influenza A's, then it is true that the next person walking in with those sorts of symptoms is more likely to have influenza A than they were, you know, the same person a month ago. So that's a, a, a useful 
use of it. But of course, some things such as a brain tumour for a headache or something where there's no relationship between one patient and the next, you may have had a bad outcome because you've missed something or it took you too long to diagnose it. And then, you know, it's a classic, everyone who then comes in after you've missed that diagnosis with a headache has a brain tumour until proven otherwise. And you tend to do the wrong thing because you're putting too much weight on that possible diagnosis. Uh, there's another cognitive bias called tribalism. And tribalism is where you like to fit in with the tribe. So fit in with the rest of your peers and everyone else is doing this and so I should too. And that can apply to patients have this bias as well. So all my friends are taking this herbal supplement and seems to be doing them good, so I should as well. It can apply to, to doctors um, as in there's this flash new treatment, which doesn't have much evidence, but I think it might work, but uh, it might not work. I'll, I'll seem like a bit of a fool if I stand out from the crowd, so trying to fit in with the crowd. So that's availability bias, tribalism bias, and there's illusory correlation. Illusory correlation is that, you know, we to make it sound smarter in Latin, post hoc, ergo propter hoc, after which, therefore, because of which, I just like to always throw in some Latin in this podcast, basically thinking that causation association equals causation. Of course, we use this all the time. So us prescribing antibiotics for viruses is horrendously long-standing illusory correlation, which I barely need to go into because everyone's so familiar with it. You know, that five days later, their symptoms get better. Therefore, it was because I gave them the latest uh, antibiotic five days ago. A fourth one is familiarity bias. All of these, of course, apply to life in general, but I'm just talking about how they apply in medicine. The familiarity bias is something you're very familiar and comfortable with and you tend to use that more. Now, again, this can be a good thing if there are you know, 25 ACE inhibitors to, you can prescribe or beta blockers or whatever it might be. You probably are better off just choosing you know, two or three uh, among that set and becoming familiar with them because you're familiar with the doses and all that sort of stuff. But it can become a problem when you, you know, they say to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So if you only have a limited repertoire for trying to fix something, then what happens is person comes in with something which is a bit similar and in fact shouldn't be given that particular treatment, but you tend to corral them into the same treatment just because you are familiar with it so i think the orthopedic surgeon who does knee arthroscopies might be a classic example so everyone with knee pain what do i do really really well i do knee arthroscopies therefore i'll give lots and lots of people knee arthroscopies if they're sent to me the the last one i just wanted to talk about was uh, consistency bias uh, which is also called commitment bias and basically that's that's a bit like your poker player or your pokies player who's put a whole lot of money into the machine. So you invested a lot of effort into a particular diagnosis and then you think, well, I can't pull out now. So again, you keep playing the pokies machine because you think I must be due for a big win soon. In medicine, it might be, for example, that you've been thinking something is, for example, I don't know, rosacea, a rash, and you've tried 18 different creams or, or treatments or something and the person comes in and says it's still not working, you put so much effort and time and discussion around this diagnosis that you're more likely to just try any other thing you can get your 
hands-on for rosacea rather than stepping back and thinking, hmm, did I get it wrong about a rash in the first place? And in Aboriginal health where I work, that happens with scabies rashes, I think. So uh, you see a few scabies and you keep treading for scabies and people still get this itchy rash and you're sort of stuck on the concept of scabies because you've spent so long explaining it to someone and you just keep treating over and over and over for the same thing rather than starting from scratch. Mm. They do talk about that in a lot of areas of medicine, anaesthetics, where they do anaesthetic training. One of the GPs in our surgery does a lot of anaesthetics, and he said that's one of the key things they emphasise is when you th- the patient's deteriorating, and obviously that's a, a rapid environment, first thing you should do instead of pushing on is go, hold on, stop, quick reassess, mm-hmm. is there anything I'm missing, and then before you charge on and and just assume that um, what you're doing is correct. Yeah, well, I think in those emergency high-pressure situations, in fact, doctors, there's probably actually much more work done on these biases and countering them in those situations for very, very good reason. I mean, the Dr. ABC of, uh, of first aid is, is a classic example. You know, check for danger and you get these algorithms to, to stop you doing what you first want to do and saying, take a step back, use some type two thinking, let's analyse the situation. This person's there, you know, lying motionless on the ground. Is there an electric wire sort of they're touching at the, at the time? And, and it's not something you would automatically first think of. So you have these algorithms and these very strict protocols in, in ICU and emergency and in ambulance offices and things which help protect you against this sort of rapid intuitive thinking and make you take a step back. Mm. And I guess you're right, that's very difficult to do in the complexity and the multifactorial situation of a general practice consultation. Yeah, well, there's just much less space for algorithms in general practice because, of course, the variety is absolutely enormous and in first aid there's a very specific outcome you want you want the patient to be alive in half an hour's time for when the ambulance comes and and clever people take over their care Um, and and virtually nothing else matters so you you don't need to worry about all the nuances of whether you miss something little or get a few things wrong Uh, whereas of course in general practice that's that's not the case there are a thousand things people can come in with and each of them can branch off into 10 different reasons for them being there so you just uh, you can't have algorithms for all occasions. Okay. You mentioned previously the case of somebody who comes in, all the symptoms are hep A, you've, uh, sorry, hep A, influenza A. Um, Any other situations apart from where it's a illness that can affect a wide, that's sort of communicable, any other examples where rapid diagnosis or type 1 thinking is the appropriate type of thinking to use? Look, I think um, with, let's go back to the way a medical student takes a history and examination. They're, They're thorough, they do a systems review, they ask 55 different questions about each part of the symptom, each part of the, the system, and then they come up with a list of differentials, they run through each of those and come up with a list of this is most likely, this is the second most likely. Now, a good, clever med student will do that pretty effectively, but they will also take an hour on the problem and they'll not quite have the confidence at the end to have known and said, yes, I really do think this is it enough that I'm going to treat you. They'll present this to someone to analyse. Now, as you go on, registrars obviously are much uh, more efficient at that. They've been trained in the hospital, but still not as efficient as as an experienced GP. So I think 
your experience GP or, you know, it's a rapid learning curve during your FRAC GP training, experienced GP will come to these rapid diagnoses quickly and, yes, there's definitely a place for them. So if you're churning through, you know, uh, patients, you know, in, in 10 or 15 minutes, it, it's very appropriate, you know, for a, a chickenpox rash or something or, a, you know, three kids in the family coming with vomiting and, and diarrhoea. It's very appropriate to immediately be thinking right from the start, okay, it's likely to be, you know, say a, a viral gastro. And, you know, this is the sort of questions I'm going to ask. I'm going to focus my history focus my examination on what matters. I'm not going to do a full GIT examination on every kid. I'm going to maybe have a quick poke at their belly, make sure I'm not missing anything or whatever, whatever you decide. But there's lots of shortcuts you'll take and you'll come to a quite appropriate decision in a fairly short amount of time. You'll have asked with red flags, you can you know a couple of key questions to ask you know, mum, just to make sure you, you're not missing things. You know, generally they've been otherwise well, have they running around without fevers or whatever? Yeah, yeah, they've, they've been fine. It's just this vomiting or whatever. You know, that, that already cuts out a whole heap of different possible questions you could ask, which would be entirely different if the kid was carried in, you know, floppy and, and mum said they're really worried. So it's, it's an entire different scenario. So these rapid diagnoses are certainly, they keep the health system going, really, because, I mean, GPs see however many millions of uh, consultations mm-hmm. each day in Australia, and, and the system would collapse if you couldn't get a few rapid diagnoses in there. Yeah. Um, okay, so what about investigations? What biases do we see in the investigation of patients in general practice? Yeah, investigations is one I've been interested in for uh, for a good few years now, looking at the rational use of investigations and avoiding over-investigations. The reason I'm into avoiding over-investigations is I think we're taught pretty well in medicine what investigations are out there and what are possible. And, you know, because we are taught by specialists generally in our medical schools and hospitals, early careers, where, you know, that they, they have their head all around, you know, all the possible investigations and endocrinologists will have a set of lots and lots of very specialised investigations they'll use very appropriately and we're taught those. So we don't have any problem with not knowing what is out there, at least how to look it up if we can't remember the name of it. But what we can do is get a, I guess, a, a reliance bias, if you like, on investigations. So we tend to think that the investigation will give us the answer and we have this we, we tend to forget about the pre-test odds. So nearly every investigation you ever do, even if it's a clinical uh, examination or whether it's a, a test you order, the likelihood of a positive result meaning something relies incredibly heavy, heavily on the pre-test odds or the likelihood of the person having the condition in the first place. Now, of course, in general practice, that pre-test odds is considerably lower than someone in a tertiary medical hospital where we're taught. So if you have a headache in a you know neurology or, or brain surgery outpatients department, you've probably got, I don't know, 100 times the chance of having a 
brain tumor or some horrible thing happening than, than in general practice. And again, if you order the same investigations in both places, then a positive you know, finding on the investigation in the tertiary centre is going to be far more meaningful than a positive in general practice. So I guess you know, when, when we're ordering these tests, we have to always bear in mind how likely the person is to have it in the first place. And in fact, um, Michael Tam, who's, um, who's a GP, I have a lot of time for it. He's, he gives sensible advice. And I remember him saying on a uh, GPDU post at one point, he, he put this long thing, which is to, he, the way he sees investigations as it bumps you up the scale a little as to the likelihood of, of the diagnosis occurring. So he said, for example, if you divide everyone into, imagine everyone in seven categories from highly unlikely to have a disease to, you know, a bit likely to in the middle and then highly likely. So he said a positive investigation result usually bumps you up about two categories. So if you're about 50-50 for possibly having something, that'll bump you up to being, you know, fairly likely to having it, uh, a positive result. Whereas if you're highly unlikely to have it in the first place, a positive test result, whether it's a urine dipstick or whatever it is, is only going to bump you up to being still a bit less likely, uh, still not overly likely to uh, having that disease. So I guess it, it's just a mm. concept with investigations that we, uh, we, have, we have this reliance on them. And I think we all do it. You see a positive result come back on, a, on your computer screen and on a bit of paper and, uh, and particularly if the patient sees it, it's very hard, very hard to say, well, actually, no, you probably don't. Yes, that's right. Um, I mean, all you need to do yeah. is look, I mean, look, we sort of intrinsically know this because if you order a UEC, LFT, FBE, I mean, you've got about 25 numbers there. And we're so used to seeing one of them in red that we just, you know, we flick over it and virtually ignore it uh, probably most of the time because one of every 20 results is going to come back in red even for an entirely normal person. Um, and, and we're sort of, we're intrinsically aware that, look, you don't take much notice if one of the, you know, salts is slightly high or slightly low. Okay. Well, now if we look at treatment, our next podcast episode is going to be on the role of drug companies. But can you give us any other examples of cognitive bias in treatment? Yeah, well, one, one I've been interested in recently with treatment is looking at the, the bias in what evidence is out there in the first place. So, for example, in, in surgery, lots of trials in surgery are all about they assume the surgery works and it's really good because it's been done for years and years and years and decades and literally tens of thousands of surgeons around the world are doing the surgery. And the trials tend to be on minutiae, really, relatively, like does this particular way of doing the surgery works slightly better than this other way. And then it's interesting, in the, in the last few months, we've had a couple of fantastic trials, which, you know, were difficult almost to get past the, past the ethics, which were using sham surgery. And I'm referring here to sham stents uh, insertion, where it was, it's just been assumed forever and ever that, uh, well, first it was assumed that stents um, helped prevent heart attacks and then they did actually eventually show they probably don't do all that much but then it was 
they helped reduce symptoms of angina. And that was certainly the teaching up until this fairly recent study. I'm not, I mean, there's lots of nuances and, and caveats and all that sort of thing. But the, in summary, the study, this particular group of people was that uh, if you do a sham stent, in other words, put someone to sleep and pretend to insert a stent but don't actually do it versus an actual stent, there really was very little difference in result, and which is sort of extraordinary, really, given how many how many stents are done. And, and a similar one was just done, I think it was only a couple of months ago, on, on shoulder surgery. So, you know, arthroscopic surgery for um, rotator cuff, I think it was um, acromioplasty, sort of scraping the bottom off the acromion. And again, sham surgery really showed uh, no difference in pain or function outcome. I think it was at three months and at 12 months so these are extraordinary findings where we you know we've just because these surgeries are just done all the time and all the all the previous evidence has just been looking at which arthroscope do you use and and how much do you scrape off ignoring the question does the whole thing actually work does it help yeah you'd certainly have to say that medical therapy is far better studied before it's let loose on the population than than surgical therapies yeah and i think uh, things like you know some some therapies are understudied so you know i mean exercise and and things like that you know exercise really moving from being sedentary to not being sedentary really has more effect on so many things than than either bits of surgery or or medications and and yet it's not heavily funded and there's no exercise reps who come around and visit your office and tell you about how good exercise is so look thanks very much justin it's been fascinating for those who are interested in reading further the book that justin mentioned is called thinking fast and slow by daniel kahneman the nobel prize winning economist now justin we are talking again in our next episode on a particular interest area of yours um, the influence of drug companies in the medical profession so, look, thank you again, Justin, and I look forward to talking next episode. Thanks, Sean. Been a pleasure.